I wanna make a couple observations and then we're gonna jump into a, a passage that may help us think uh, a bit about this whole issue of time in our lives. But the, the first observation I want us to, to think about just for a moment is that time, and we don't typically think of it this way, but time is a limited resource. Um, we only have so much of it. Now when you're young, you don't think that it's a limited resource because there's always tomorrow. What I'm discovering as I get older is you begin to realize it is a very limited resource. There's a point where it ends. But, but the point of that is because it's a limited resource, it is something we have to manage. If, if we had all the time that we could desire, we wouldn't have to manage. It's like if you had all the money you could desire, you wouldn't have to manage it. But because we don't have all the money we desire, we have to manage the resource. We have to manage the resource of time. It's a gift to us that we, in a sense, need to invest and invest well. The second thing, and this may surprise you, um, you probably have more time than you think you do. Okay, I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to tell them how, much, how many hours of leisure time you have in a typical week. Take a moment and think about it. How many hours of leisure time do you have in a typical week? How, how many people said 50? No. 40? No. One. You must be retired. <laughs> 30? 20? <laughs> 10? Five? None? <laughs> John Robinson, he is uh, known as the father of time studies. In fact, his colleagues call him Father Time. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota. He has done surveys, I mean thousands of surveys of people and had them track their time. And his conclusion is that the average person has 40 hours of free time a week. Now you're probably thinking, no, that's not true for me. It is true for you. If you don't believe it, track your time, do a time log. He, this is what he has people do. T track your time and do a time log. You know, when you're standing in line, when you're driving to work, when you're taking a shower, when you're eating a dinner, when you're at work, whatever. And if you add that up, and he's very strict about what counts as leisure to him, you have, if you're, you're typical, there may be a few exceptions to this, about 40 hours a week of leisure time. Okay, that's a lot. Uh, about five hours, six hours a day. Uh, he also found out that not only are we not as busy as we think we are, we're also not as tired as we think we are. The average person sleeps, guess what? Eight and three quarters hours a night, all right? And both our leisure time and the amount we sleep is on the increase and has been on the increase for the last 40 years, okay? We're less busy, not more busy than people 40 or 50 years ago. And we have a lot more time to sleep, okay? Guess what is the biggest consumer of our leisure time? This should not be hard. Yeah, TV. 50% of our leisure time goes to TV. That's, that's the normal person watches 20 hours a week. And get this, he's also found in his study 
that the more TV you watch, the less happy you are. So if you want a happy life with a lot more time because you're too busy, unplug your television set. It's the solution to life, or at least that part of it, possibly. Now, all of you are there sitting incredulous. You don't believe it, but it's true. We have far more leisure time than we think, and we invest it rather poorly. This morning, I want to talk about handling time, but I'm, I'm not going to talk about how you manage competing priorities, how you get more family time, how you deal with your busyness, or how all that's important. But I think what's far more important than that is to delve a little deeper and, and look at the framework in which we handle time within and how do we have a kingdom framework with which to handle that time. So, so kind of a, a big picture, deeper understanding of what's behind how we manage our time that then translates into the, the, the minutes, hours, days that we live. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. I wanna do that by looking at a, a chapter in Ephesians chapter five, uh, verses eight through 16, 17. Um, and I, I wanna give you two foundational truths. And then I wanna give kind of three time investment principles that come from this text uh, that I think are helpful to kind of reorient how we think about the whole issue of time. So this is the passage. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, uh, we're gonna begin with verse eight and look at these two foundational principles. Um, and the first foundational truth is simply this. It's understanding the reality that we've been transformed. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Paul is using this metaphor of light and darkness to talk about the change that has happened to us. And darkness represents ignorance and evil and everything opposed. It's kind of the anti-God position, darkness. And light represents truth and righteousness and in a sense, God himself. And what is interesting about his comment here is he's not saying you were once living in darkness, uh, but now you're living in light. Uh, um, he, he, he's not saying darkness surrounded you, but now light surrounds you. That, that may be true. He's saying something deeper here. Notice he says, for you were once darkness. You just didn't live in darkness. You, you were darkness. Wow. He said, well, wait a second. This is, obviously, he's talking to believers, and he's saying before you came into this, this vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus, uh, um, you were dark. And you're saying, well, I wasn't that bad. Well, you, it's not that you were, think about what darkness is. What is darkness? Darkness is simply the absence of light. And he said, before you knew Jesus, there was no light in you at all because God was absent. I have a fr friend, Doug Wilson, who back in the day was a world-class spelunker. Um, he would go into caves all around Colorado. They, in fact, was certified to dive into caves. He took me once with him into a cave called Groaning Cave. It's down by Grand Junction. And I always had this idea that, that a cave was this kind of tunnel underground. 
what I discovered in Groning Cave is it's a boulder field underground in complete darkness, and you'd crawl around and under and over boulders and through. And about five minutes into it, I realized that if something happened to Doug, I died. Because there was no way I would know how to get out. The other thing I discovered on that trip is what darkness is like. Because you take like three light sources with you just in case, but if you turn them all off, it's utter darkness. And we don't experience that very much in our lives, utter darkness, there's always a little bit of light. But in utter darkness, you take your hand, you can, it, it, it's nothing. You can't, you can't see anything. It is the weirdest feeling. And that's what Paul is describing here, the absence of light. Basically, before we came to Christ, we were spiritual black holes. You know what a black hole is? It's a deteriorating star that has caved in on itself, and the gravitational pull is so strong that light, not even light itself, can escape. All right? And that's before we're Christ. But notice there's an adversative there. He says, that's what you once were, not in darkness, but you were darkness, but now you are light. And he's not saying now you live in light or you're around light. He's saying you, you are light. And, and, and the notion, notice the next three words, in the Lord. Because we have entered into this relationship with God who is light, the God of light has come into us and now we are light. I was trying to think what's a good illustration of this. Have you ever seen those glow-in-the-dark stars when my kids were small? We'd buy these things and you put them up on their wall and you shine light on them and there's, there's phosphors in them that, that uh, the characteristic, they absorb the light and then when you turn the light off, they emit the light, the energy comes out of them. That's what's happened to us. God, who is light, has come in to us and in a sense has made us light. So now that light is emitted out of us. We don't manufacture the light, but in a sense we're the source of it because now something different is, something is different in the very core of our identity uh, of who we are. And now we emit light and that begins to ripple out. So he says, but you are now light in the Lord. Live as eternal light for the fruit of light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And it's this, this idea that we have been changed at the very center of who we are. Um, coming to Christ, you know, Jesus is not a wonder drug that makes our life happy. Jesus doesn't come and, and try to cause some cosmetic change in our life. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, it is to change you at the very core of your being. And the deeper the change inside of you, the more radical the ripple effect in the rest of your life. So when Jesus comes into us, he, he changes us, uh, our, our, our core identity, and he, thus he changes our belief structure. So he, he, he changes what we love and what we desire. He, he changes what we value. He changes what's important to us. He, he changes how we think and what our attitudes are. And that ripples down into how we speak and how we, we interact then with people. And then it, it changes how we act and how we live. It changes how we do work and how we do relationships and how we do marriage. It, it, it changes how we handle our money and how we deal with sex 
sexuality. It, it, it's this, this radical change deep inside of us that has this radical ripple effect that touches every area of our lives. And if our lives are not getting touched, if there's no ripple effect, then we have to begin to ask ourselves, is there any deep change? You, you see, it, it's this notion of transformation. And uh, that's what he's getting at. Now, there's two implications from this that I think are really important. One, for us to manage life and time well, uh, this radical change is a, an absolute prerequisite. This, this deep change. Uh, um, because until that deep change takes place in us, we are darkness. In other words, we're living at odds with the design and purpose for which we were created. And until that change takes place, we're out of step with the design of the creator and his world. So we're never going to handle life well. Uh, um, and the change that has to happen to us has to be this, this deep change. It has to be this transformative change. Um, which means... We can't just play the game. Christianity is not a list of rituals that you do. It's not simply a matter of going to church. It's not just kind of a lifestyle you adopt. It results in all of those things, but at its heart, it's this radical transformation at the very core of your being that then ripples through. You know, you can go out and you, I did this once. I wasn't paying attention. I bought a bag of stars and I thought they were glow-in-the-dark stars because they were the same color and they were stars and we put them on the walls. The problem is you shine light on them and then turn the light off and they were dark because they were missing phosphorus, which is the chemical, the, the element inside glow-in-dark stars that absorb the light. There, there's people who kind of play the game of faith. They may even go to church. They say they're believers. They, in some ways, act like believers. Uh, they go through some of the rituals. They adopt some of the lifestyle. They adopt some of the language. But they haven't really experienced this, this internal shift uh, of being in the Lord where light invades them and changes them from darkness to light. And that has to happen. Um, and I think what it means is uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us to examine ourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? I think there are moments in life, and if we're going to manage time well, I think it begins here, taking a moment to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, am I darkness or am I light? And, and really be honest. I mean, am I just going through the motions? Is it just kind of a cosmetic thing? Do I just use the language? Or has there been this profound, fundamental, radical shift at the core of my being that is rippling through my life? When I was growing up, I mean, when I was young, I went to church all the time. I went through catechism in Sunday school. I went through first communion. Uh, I was, had been baptized. Uh, I... Uh, I went through confirmation. If you had asked me, was I a, a Christian? I really didn't know what that was, but I would have told you, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I wasn't, I was, I was in darkness. 
I didn't know I was in darkness, but I was in darkness. And it wasn't until later, in between my junior and senior year of high school, that somebody began to, to share with me what it really meant to come into this, this vibrant, real, intimate relationship with the God of the universe, uh, where you commit your life to, to Christ and his light invades you. And it's this radical transformation that, that ripples through your life. Uh, um, has that happened? Has that happened? And I want to challenge you this morning. Uh, a lot of you come to Waterstone and some of you are just checking Christiana out. And that's great. But at some point, there's a time to step back and say, hey, uh, where am I in this whole thing in terms of my relationship with Jesus? Because it's, it's not just about church or the rituals or ministry or the good things. That Those are all circumstances external to us that are important. But at its heart, it's about this relationship with Jesus. And, and I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that's the key issue. And has that happened to us? So let's begin there. Then the second thing that happens to us, we, we then have been reoriented. So this ripple effect begins to make its way through our lives and things begin going to change. And then he says this, we're to live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. And the assumption is there's a reorientation that has taken place. <clears throat> Before we, we, we came to Christ, when we were in darkness, basically we lived for ourselves because there's nothing else to, to live for. And it might have got expressed in a host of different ways, but basically we were out to please ourselves, either to make our life significant or to have meaning or to make a lot of money or, or to fulfill our destiny or to be happy. Uh, all kinds of things we might label on it, but at its core, it was really about us, about us pleasing ourselves. And, and Paul is saying, he's, he's making this assumption that when you come to Jesus and this radical transformation happens to, there's a reorientation uh, that takes place from living to please yourself, that now your orientation is to live to please God. And it's this lifelong journey of learning what it is that pleases God. And what that does is it introduces into us this, this the struggle. Uh, we'd like to think, okay, now that I'm light, you know, I, I live to please God, but I have this old pattern of living to please myself. And we'd like to think that, you know, my desires line up perfectly with God's desires and God's desires line up perfectly with my desires. But that doesn't, that's a lifelong process. So, so we, we now are living in the midst of this, 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 this war uh, you know, am I going to do what God wants me to do or am I going to do what I want to do? And that's the experience of the Christian life. And hopefully as we grow, more of our desires uh, align with his desires. I, I ran across a little story that Garrison Keillor tells on himself that I, I thought captured some of that struggle and it made me laugh. So I, I thought it'd be good to share this morning. He's talking about when he was young. He says, on this morning in August, when I am 13, it's hot by 10 o'clock. I poked along over the post toasties as long as I could. Then my mother sent me out to pick tomatoes. Rudy and Phyllis were already out there. I picked one and uh, threw it at a crab apple tree. Made a good splat. The tree was full of little crab apples we'd have to deal with eventually, and a few of them fell. My brother and sister stood up and looked. What did you do? We're gonna tell. 
I picked up the biggest tomato I saw and took out a few more crab apples. Then I threw a tomato at my brother. He whipped one back at me. We ducked down by the vines, heaving tomatoes at each other. My sister, who was a good person, said, you're going to get it. She bent over and kept on picking. What a target. <laughs> she was 17, a girl with big hips, and bending over, she looked like the side of a barn. I picked up a tomato so big it sat on the ground. It looked like it had sat there for a week. The underside was brown. Small white worms lived in it. It was very juicy. I had to handle it carefully to keep from spilling it on myself. I stood up and I took aim. I went into the windup. When my mother at the kitchen window called my name in sharp voice, Garrison, I had to decide quickly. I decided a rotten big boy hitting the target is a memorable sound. <laughs> like a fat man doing a belly flop and followed by a whoop and a yell from the tomato E. She came after me faster than I knew she could run and I took off for the house. But she grabbed my shirt and it was about to brain me when mother yelled, Phyllis! And my sister, who was a good person, obeyed and let go and burst into tears. I guess she knew that the pleasure of obedience is pretty thin sometimes compared to the pleasure of hearing a rotten tomato hit someone in the rear end. <laughs> Have you ever been there? <laughs> that, that tension in our lives between doing what we know is right and what we wanna do, what God pleases. At times, we do what we wanna do because for the moment, it's pleasurable. But the long-term consequences especially if we're children of light. But that's the tension. That's the Christian life. This reorientation uh, uh, introduces the struggle of who we're going to please. So my question then is, what is it that pleases God? I think it's a lifelong journey learning what pleases him. I did, I did a, a little study on the word please because it's kind of curious what that meant. And I was surprised when I found out the word for please at its very root is, is, is the verb to be or the verb is. And I thought, oh, that's really odd. Uh, uh, this, this notion uh, of well-pleasing, what's well-pleasing is, is really connected to the, the notion of being. And then I thought about it. I thought, oh, that makes sense. Uh, um, what pleases someone is really a reflection of who they are, right? So, so what is pleasing to God uh, must be a reflection of who he is. And, and the notion is the better we understand who he is, the better we understand what pleases him because what pleases him is a reflection of his essence. So that's why it's this long journey of growing intimate with the Father, understanding the nature and essence of God. And as we understand Him, we understand what pleases Him. And it's absolutely radical when you begin to think about it. Because uh, let's, let's talk about it for just a moment. What, what is it that pleases God? Well, one of the things that pleases God, what he, what he wants out of us is we want us to love Him. And we love Him by being obedient to Him. And when we're obedient to Him, we please Him. Okay, 
But that's, that's a lot to learn. Uh, the other thing, another thing that pleases God is to love other people. But when God talks about us loving other people, he, he's not talking about us simply loving other people who are like us. He, he's talking about loving people who are other than this, who are different than us. You see, it's easy for us to, to prioritize and love and care about people who are part of our tribe. But Jesus is saying, no, I want, I want, you, I want you, that's easy. I want you to love those who are not part of your tribe, those who are marginal, those who are difficult, those who other people reject, those people that others don't care about. I want you to love the unlovely. I, I, I want you, that is what pleases, that's what pleases me. And you begin to playing that out in scripture and it, you, know, you, know, you get to those places where we're told that God loves the quartet of the vulnerable. That's the poor, right? That's one of them. Widows, one of them. Orphans, one of them. All of them are and immigrants. That's the quartet of the four. All of those people, uh, the poor, widows, orphans, and immigrants are disenfranchised, are incredibly vulnerable because they don't have resources, to live life well. And God says, those, those people have a special place in my heart. I care about them. Remember, it's a reflection of his essence and we need to reflect that. So, so those people have to have a special place in our hearts. Uh, uh, um. and, and you begin to understand that, that God is saying, we are to love the other beyond ourselves and it's not about us. One of the, uh, let me talk big picture culturally. One of the things that's happening in our world today is the rise of nationalism. People are becoming more and more concerned about their tribe. They want to protect their tribe and their interest. God is not a nationalist. God, God cares about all people. I mean, think about what God is achieving in the end, right? If you go to Revelation, we'll see this in a few months, that the end of the story is people gathered around the throne from every tribe, every nation, every culture, every language. God is about establishing a multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual community called his church. And that's what he cares about. He, he does not look at our world through American eyes. He could care less about America first. That, that's not his, his desire or value. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't see us, the United States, as better than any other country in the world because he's concerned about all tribes and all people. And if we're followers of him and want to reflect his essence, that has to be true in how we think and what we value and how we act and in all we do. That's reflecting the essence of God. So, so the more you understand him and the closer you get to him, the more radical it becomes in terms of loving him and loving others. Uh, he loves mercy. He loves justice. He, he, he loves those things. We, we, we tend to, and we'll talk about this a little more in a moment, make our faith very small that it's about me and Jesus and getting to heaven. And, and God says, no, no, no. If you want to please me, it's much grander than that. It's not just about you, your family, and your tribe. It's about the world and what I'm doing there. So we, we seek to please him.
So those are foundational truths. And, and the point I'm trying to make is before we can talk about how to, to manage our time and manage life, those things have to be true about us. We have to experience this transformation of deep change. And that deep change has to reorient us so that now we enter into the struggle where, where we really work in our lives to find out, right, find out what pleases God and then live that out. And then that translates into some investment principles. So let, let's talk about some key time investment principles. Verses 15 through 16, he says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Um, that's, that's the first principle, and it's this notion that we should live intentionally. Um, the, the words there, very careful, are really two words. One of the words means to watch and the other means to, to be careful. So the idea is to watch what you're doing or watch how you're living very carefully. Give attention, pay attention to how you live. And, and the word for careful means paying attention to the details. It, it's the picture of somebody who's playing a concert at a piano and they're trying to make sure that they hit every note right, that they, they, they do it with expression, that they've got it down to the details, that nothing's missed, that it's just played well. And that's what he's saying. Make sure that you play life well. In fact, how you live, live is just the word for walk. He's saying, make sure how you walk through life, that you do that with, with you do it well. He says, not as unwise, but wise. Wise has two notions to it. One is the idea of doing something with skill. So we're to live life with skill. And the unwise or the foolish, the second notion is that God is absence. So he's basically saying, if you're gonna live with wisdom, you live life with skill, but you live life with skill because you put God at the center of it. The unwise person takes God out of the picture and that's what the fool is, a person who approaches life without God. He's saying, put God in the center and now because God's at a center, live very intentionally, uh, pay attention to the details so that you walk with skill and you live intentionally. In other words, you don't just let life happen to you. In some sense, you make life happen. Life is this, this gift that God has given you. Now you're responsible to invest it well. So invest your, your time well. I, I meet people who, who don't live intentionally. They, they, I, I meet some people who are just, they're, they're aimless. They're, it, it's like the difference between a dry leaf blowing in the wind and an arrow, Right? An arrow has intentionality. It's headed towards a target. It knows in a sense where it's going because it's aimed. A dry leaf is just blown wherever the wind takes it. And there's some people who live that, way, live that way and kind of celebrate. Well, you know, I'm just waiting for the spirit to move. I don't know exactly where I'm going or what I'm doing. You know, some people say that's a, 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 a characteristic of the millennial generation. I meet some millennials that are like that. However, I meet millennials that are not like that. Millennials are not monolithic. And I don't find that, that carefree attitude just in millennials. I find all kinds of people who, who do that. They, they just are waiting for something to happen. And some people will say, well, you know, this idea of living in, I'm a spontaneous person. That's not my personality. That's not my wiring. I, I, you know, it's not fair to expect me to be that structured and, and to live so intentionally. 
Let me make two comments about those people, that, that group, okay? One, never let your wiring become an excuse for your laziness, okay? Never let your wiring become an excuse for laziness. You may be spontaneous. You may be unstructured. You may not like to, yeah, so? Look, I'm an introvert, right? That does not give me permission to go hide in a corner on Sunday mornings, right? I have a little thing I put on my date planner. Don't be relationally lazy because that's my temptation, right? That's my wiring. I, give me a crowd. I don't particularly like it. I like you, but I just don't like the crowd when you're all together. <laughs> but because I'm wired that way, it doesn't give me a pass. You know? Just because you're spontaneous and you're unstructured and you're not, uh, doesn't give you a pass. You have a responsibility to live intentionally. Which leads me to my second comment. And this is my pastoral side coming out, okay? Grow up. <laughs> right? Grow up. Maturity, the difference between childhood and maturity is maturity, adults take responsibility and make decisions and thus live intentionally. And some people just don't want to take on the commitment because if you take on the commitment, then you take on the responsibility and suddenly you can't blame others, you have to look to yourself. But that's growing up. And if you don't grow up, you're gonna sit around and you're gonna wake up one day and realize you wasted your life. You wasted this, this incredible gift, this resource that God has given to you to invest well. And you can only do that if you live with intention. Being very careful about how you live. And then he says, make the most of every opportunity. And what he's basically saying is make the most of the moment. Uh, some versions of the Bible say, uh, translate this as redeem the time. Um, I like the notion of redeem because uh, making the most, uh, the word there is from the commercial field of commerce and, and it has this sense of buying back, of investing. And what Paul is saying here is take those well, the word for opportunity, there's two words for time in the Bible. One is keros and one is chronos. Chronos is seconds, hours, days, weeks. It's, it's the ticking of the clock. The other word kairos, which is the word here that gets translated opportunity, is that it, it, it's not the moments and times. It, it, it's the, 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 those moments where you are given an opportunity to do something well. It's, it, it's life of expectation. It's, it, 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 it's opportunity. And he's saying, make the most, redeem, buy back every opportunity, every moment. And he's saying, take your time and invest it with significance, with, with meaning, with, with, with thought. With, with, redeem, redeem the time, but he means make the most of what you're giving. Do you remember the Dead Poet Society movie with Robin Williams? Uh, um, he's a teacher at this prep school and he's kind of at odds with the administration because he's kind of this free spirit, but he, he wants his class to grab a hold of that Latin motto, carpe diem, which means seize the day. That's what Paul is saying here. Seize the day, make the most of your time for the kingdom in light of the fact that God's in the picture. How do you do that? He's not saying you can't recreate or you can't have fun or you can't hang out. He's just saying even do that with God in the kingdom in the picture. Uh, make the most of it. So live with intention. 
Make the most of the moment. And, and he says, why? Because the days are evil. What's he mean? He's saying that the, the gravitational pull of life is away from God. It's like we live on a treadmill. <laughs> and if you don't keep walking on the treadmill, you're moving farther away and off the game. That's life. The gravitational pull of life is not towards God. It's away from God. So unless you become intentional about how you live and how you use your time in the moments and make most of them and invest them and fill them with significance and put them in the big picture of the kingdom, you're losing. You're moving away. And then he gets to the last thing. And this is kind of interesting. He says, but understand what the Lord's will is. So we got to understand God's will. Now, when we read that phrase, we think God's will is talking about the notion of personal guidance right? Where I should live and who I should marry and what kind of job I should have. And that's not what Paul is talking about. I mean, yeah, that's some of the implications of it. But when Paul talks about the phrase of God's will and uses that in his writing, he's not talking about personal guidance. He's talking about the big picture of what God is doing in the world. He's saying, look, uh, live intentionally and make the most of a moment understanding the big picture of what God is doing in terms of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that God is bringing about his kingdom. His kingdom, his agenda, his way of thinking and doing and willing is invading this world. And now because we are light, we have an opportunity to shine in the darkness and make an impact for that kingdom. That's why Jesus says the priority in life is to seek first, what? His kingdom and his righteousness. His kingdom is his agenda, his will. We're to see the kingdom of heaven come down on earth and be implemented and we're to participate in that. In other words, we're to see God's kingdom come, not just in our lives, yes, but more than that, in our lives, in our family, but also in our community and in our city and in our country and in our world, God has an agenda and it's his righteousness. And that doesn't mean me being moral. It's his righteousness. What's that mean? His right, that word could also be translated justice. So we're, we're not only to seek his kingdom, but the implication is because we're seeking his desires, his kingdom, his will, we'll be seeking his justice. And justice is the way things he, uh, justice is the way thing he intended things to be. And our life is to be wrapped up in, 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 into that. So what he's saying is, look, don't live small. We, we, you've given this precious gift of time. Don't invest it just small. Live big. You have the opportunity to be part of what God is doing in the world in terms of his kingdom purposes. Live big. What has happened in America is we, we've shortchanged Christianity. We've truncated the gospel. We've made it smaller than it is. So we tell people, well, come to Jesus, get forgiven, get to go to heaven. And that's it. And that's true, but that's not the story. The gospel does forgive you your sin, but it makes you light. And the reason you're light is so that you can shine in the darkness. And the end goal isn't heaven because heaven comes down here. The end goal is to live for the kingdom and change the world around us to reflect God's heart, his desires. That, you see, if you make the, 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 the gospel small, it's just about you and him and being forgiven and getting to heaven. Quite honestly, that's pretty boring after a while. And, and so many of us live small 
because we think it's just about us and our little world and our little tribe and our little family. And yes, it is about all that, but, but it's about so much more. So much more. And if we could just live big and get God's vision of the world, it infuses life with significance and meaning. Uh, and then you really are living intentionally and making the most of the moment and you understand the big picture and you live your life in that framework. Ah, it breathes life into you. Because it's not just about you, it's about him. And what he desires and what pleases him. It makes sense. So I have an assignment for you. I want you to take an hour this week sometime in your busy schedule. Take it out of your leisure time. Turn the TV off for an hour. And do a little life inventory. You know, what are you doing with this gift of life, this gift of time that God has given to you? Have you been radically changed? And has that change reoriented you? And because you're reoriented, are you living intentionally? Are you making the most of every moment? And are you doing in light of the bigger kingdom of what God's doing in the world? That's life changing. Let's pray. Father, you've given us an incredible opportunity to be part of what you're doing in terms of your kingdom. Father, I pray for us that we wouldn't miss out. I pray that not only individually, but for us as a church, that that waterstone would be hard after your kingdom, your agenda, that we would make the most of every opportunity, that we as a church would live intentionally, and that we would be, in a sense, Lord, that we would just be a church that lives, lives big because we're filled with people who are living big. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.